one example that comes to mind a lot is there was a garden that was a vacant lot that we, in Campbellton and it's very visual. So when I've been there on the site, I've been there twice where literally people have walked into the site and they've just burst into tears. Mm. And they've said, you know, I used to be really afraid to walk my daughter down to this bus because the weeds were so high and it felt very dangerous or just moved that they've lived in the neighborhood the whole time and they just they just cry and it starts making you cry. That was Elizabeth Beek, a sustainability and food systems planner for the Mayor's Office of Resilience and Department of City Planning in Atlanta, Georgia. She's sharing a positive impact that she's witnessed from the implementation of urban agriculture, where agricultural practices have been included in urban spaces. Most American citizens today consider agriculture a rural land use, but the occupation has not always been separated from urbanity. In fact, throughout history, most urban civilizations planned and built their cities with agricultural provisions central to their designs. Today, many Americans, notably children, suffer from food insecurity. Urban agriculture presents itself as a solution to such issues of food accessibility and socioeconomic disparity. American food dynamics increase the prevalence of food deserts, where food is not easily accessible or available, and other areas, referred to as food swamps, where there is an abundance of cheap and easily accessible junk food instead of fresh and nourishing options. Due to systems of racial inequity, Black and Hispanic communities are affected most harshly by the gaps in the American food system. Detrimental health statistics like obesity are highest amongst Black and Hispanic Americans, with 49.6% and 44.8% respectively. There are various factors that contribute to such stats, but chief among them is the disinvestment of these communities brought about by redlining practices supported through the FHA and Homeowners Loan Corp, mentioned in our previous episode on inequity. Welcome fellow urban enthusiasts, I'm your host, Brett Kahn, and you should know by now, with me as always is... Sebastian And we are both urban planning grad students at the University of Georgia. Today's episode is titled, Urban Agriculture in America. In today's episode, you will hear from three guests affiliated with Atlanta, a locally based initiative that empowers urban residents to take control of their food resources and has set an initiative to ensure 85% of all Atlanta residents are within a half mile of fresh food by the year 2022. Apart from Elizabeth, you will hear from John Olu Obayawu, the current urban agriculture director for the city of Atlanta, and Mario Cambardella, the former urban agriculture director. You know, one of the great things about just kind of Urban Ag and the Ag Lancet Academy is a great demonstration of it is you've got people who are kind of sharing the same kind of view on like the future as far as being able to feed themselves, feed their families, feed communities, um, you know, impacts, you know, pollinators, you know, soil conservation, water conservation, all kinds of things. So it's, it's even different than, you know, when you hear Academy, one may think like, oh, who wants to go to another class? You know, like not everybody loves, you know, the quote unquote school environment. I think with Aglanta Academy, it's really a communal environment um, with knowledge shared as well. So um, it's just one of the strengths of urban agriculture. And I think the Aglanta Academy has been is great. And, you know, Elizabeth is right with the skill shares. It's not really about us going and telling people what they should do or what they should learn. There's so much knowledge already that's within the growers and within the people that are in this urban ag space that just them being able to come together and convene and share and cross stories and information and lessons learned 
and then also to do put some practical knowledge is just it's a win-win for everybody so yeah like lance academy and similar kind of programs like that are just amazing and awesome and necessary jay olu gives a great example of why we should advocate for urban ag in our communities but are there reasons for concern in these communities is urban agriculture equitable or is it just another amenity that serves as a tool for gentrification and displacement it is wide ranging um i will say you know one of the learnings i have is that community needs to be at the core so just kind of as we were talking about as far as revitalization things of that nature i kind of walk into this work i look at um the land the people and the programming um this as far as how it's being affected so um there are some communities that are highly motivated engaged in tune you know oh i've been growing food in my grandmother's backyard growing up and i've had a garden for 20 years and this is exciting and this is amazing um so you've got that end of the spectrum at the same time um you know there's some case studies and i mean this just kind of been shown that sometimes urban agriculture can be um a driver for displacement um and for gentrification and things of that nature um so not that necessarily that urban agriculture is the direct correlation but that it contributes to um some of that from time to time so you do have the nimby you do have some folks who say oh here comes a garden they're trying to kick us out you know and and are very hesitant to to really get on board with that so with that being said i mean one of my key learnings um just and the way i kind of operate in this work is that um the community needs to be involved um as early as possible um because um at the end of the day and the beginning of the day after i go home uh, other my colleagues go home you know those spaces that are activated are still in people's backyards next door neighbors etc and they're going to have to work with the repercussions and the effects of these installations and these projects and these gardens so um yeah it's i would say overall people are excited about urban agriculture from my experience and and there's so many different benefits you know some people want to build beds some people want to plant food some people want to eat some people want to just walk in the garden with their children or their families their grandparents etc um but it is it, it is one of those balances i think process is really key as far as how are how is community engaged in the process of uh yeah urban agricultural development as well as the execution of it urban agriculture should not be categorized solely as an amenity a number of urban farms have been used to reinvest in communities to workforce training food provisions and ecological restoration in the pilot we planted 775 fruit trees and those can help contribute to some of that and also heat island effects in the city and just building up our canopy and then um you know they can also produce i think in the next 20 years it's over 5 million pounds of fresh affordable food just from some of those trees and blighted properties and then um jailo kept bringing up activation and in the pilot we had over 2000 volunteers moving into those sites and 40 people going through workforce development training and 25 community programs so kind of these activations of sites and neighborhoods that bring people together you know um i think in the you know in the united states we definitely have to acknowledge and address that um agriculture has a very um uh, exciting and at the same time troubling past um and um you know at times even a violent past so um that's another one of those things where you know i think sometimes people feel that oh if you build it they will come and you know who wouldn't want to be excited about the things that elizabeth and i have talked about as far as pollinator gardens and flowers and food and markets i mean yeah that's all really exciting um at the same time you know there are people who i know who's 
you know, great grandparents were sharecroppers, you know, or, or whose great grandparents were like, you know, underpaid um, in, you know, working in agricultural fields. To this day, quite frankly, it's still prevalent, not in the work Elizabeth and I do, but throughout the agricultural system. Um, and then, of course, just the history of, you know, I mean, enslaved Africans who were enslaved, indigenous on the land, um, you know, Spanish speaking, Latin, uh, Latinx folks who are now the majority of the workers and employees. So these are also things that people bring to the table when it comes to urban agriculture is that, you know, you, you kind of meet people where they are and that process can be very um, tense at times. Mario has some ideas that can help reflect how we can overcome some of the shortcomings of current designs. This is a process in understanding the context where you're at is, is, is critical for any kind of planning and design project. Um, when I say the, the community around the urban food forest at Brown's Mill, am I talking about the neighbors? Am I talking about people in the homeowner association? Am I talking about the people that live in that district? My people that live in that quadrant of the city? Am I talking about people that live in the city? So community is so defined by the who you're talking to and you need to be specific um, and you need to ask specific questions to understand what, where they're coming from and their level of understanding of the concepts that you want to investigate. So in that regard, um, we looked at a case study would be the urban food force at Brown's Mill. Uh, there was an opportunity to showcase how a public space could be utilized for, for food production, quite simply, to create a fresh food point access. So, so it went from how can this, you know, how can a public space, like a, a, a park, how can a park contribute positively to, um, to fresh food access in the city? Well, we can create a farmer's market. We know that, but that wasn't really innovative. But we were looking for innovative models that could have a ripple effect. So why don't we look at this idea of food forestry? Now, how would that look? Well, it would totally change a lot of the rules and regulations and how we manage parks. Because parks at the city of Atlanta were historically uh, opposed to fruit trees and all these other things that were, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, messy, um, unorganized, ugly, you know, how can we make them beautiful, uh, community cared for and beloved? So how can we take this liability and make it a great asset? Because we knew the benefit of fresh food to, you know, all these obesity, hypertension, you know, all these great benefits of access to fresh food. So when you're faced with one of these great challenges, you have to investigate it. You have to at least try because you think that your, your theory is that it's going to bring this great benefit and not only benefit to this community in particular, but this community as in the community of Atlanta. And then if you look at the food, the success of the urban food force at Brown's Mill, the, the success of the nation and the success of the international, because the largest food force in the country, 7.1 acres. And it's, and it's designed to be a paradigm shift in how we manage public land so that we can support um, public health. So your question is, how do you get everybody on board? It needed that little preface. So sorry that it took us a little time, a little time to get there. 
But we started with asking four questions. What is a food forest? What is it? Because it's not your food forest, not my food forest, it's our food forest, right? What is a food forest? So part of that question is, what is a food forest was going to, doing research and presenting that to the community. Like, what is a food forest? Um, what is on our food forest? Uh, so once we established what is on our food, what is a food forest, we established that the property at Brown's Mill is a food forest because it already has pecan trees. It already has mulberries. It already has herbs. It already has these things. And it was, again, it was a realization that like, oh shit, it's right here. It's, 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 we're actually, we're not building one. We're carving out all these invasive exotics so that we can enjoy the food forest that's already there. Mm. So, um, and many times I would bring people to the site and I would say, uh, you know, um, I would stand under these great four big, great, great big trees. And I would say, I want you to pick out, I want you to tell me when you see the food forest. And they're like, well, it hasn't been built yet, right? And I'm st you're standing under four pecan trees, like reach down, pick one up enjoy it you know and a lot of it was understanding what is a food producing plant and how do you eat it so these were all the discovery points that we needed to make with the community and also investors and stakeholders shareholders all, all, all those anybody that was wanted to be involved with this is that we had to explain what is a food forest and then what the second part was what was on our food forest and then the third was what could be on a food forest what could be on a food forest is an exploratory um, sort of exercise where you get to do case studies reviews, you get to do field trips. We took the community on different parks around uh, different spaces that did celebrate community orchards and such so that people got to go see it, uh, see what uh, public food producing public management looks like. And then the last chapter is what should be on our food forest. What should be on our food forest? Now that you've established what it is, you know, what is on our inventory and analysis, what could be, and now we can now we can discern what should be. And that was a public um, design engagement project, like a community shred project that took a number of weeks with a licensed landscape architect and a land and a planting plan or a, a food producing planting plan designer. And even a mycologist, uh, someone that studied mushrooms. So, um, and we had a lot of other community resources that assisted, but then of course the community was engaged in defining what those things were. Now, one of the things that I challenge all students and really anybody that's in this type of field especially you know in the community engagement side of of building design is to really start with the adjectives and verbs so many people start with the nouns like the person the place the thing you know don't don't start there start with feelings and expressions i want it to be peaceful i want it to be restful i want it to be magical and then and then think about the ing's right think about the verbs like what are you going to do in the space i want to be reading I want to be eating. I want to be uh, relaxing. So all those things are are really, really the the the, the um, that's the stuff that the designers need to really make the space that gives that feeling. Two rules of thumb that I'll do like to kind of talk to any any uh, person that is getting their space: design for eight-year-olds and eighty-year-olds. That's number one.
You're never designing for a 24 year old or a 40 year old. They're, they're, usually they're the most mobile people. The other thing is, um, is and, and this was really important to me, was you're never, you're never just designing for the people in the room that have an opinion. You do have to take stock into the people that don't have a voice, the people that uh, had to work, that couldn't show up at the public meeting, uh, the people that don't know English, the people that are afraid to voice their opinion because of fear of some sort of exposure. And so the best is you have to either reach those people somehow or be very, very in tune with the community so that you feel like you can speak up for them. Mario is right. It is important to plan with the muted voices in mind. As planners, it is our job to design with a focus always on what will the future look like. Children impact the future form of society. Influencing the relationship with food at an early age can create cultural shifts within their community. Steve Wolfram spent the morning with one kindergarten class learning the importance of urban gardens. First thing we're going to taste, does anybody remember the name of that plant right there? We're in the Dreamkeeper Garden at Langston Hughes Academy. Everybody loud together. When you come past here, you could take a tiny piece and then continue to follow Demi this way. Ooh, Hands-on agricultural experience with planting, growing, and harvesting crops are recommended to be conducted with children in the 2018 State Indicator Report on Fruits and Vegetables. It's meant to establish healthy dietary behaviors that are more likely to continue into adulthood. The report states that only 12.2% of adults are meeting the daily fruit nutrition requirement and 9.3% of adults are meeting the daily recommended vegetable nutrition requirement. Valuation of high school students concludes that 9% met the fruit intake recommendation and a mere 2% met the vegetable intake recommendation. The Edible Schoolyard Project seeks to change the relationship children have with produce through interactive classes in organic gardens and kitchens. The project started at the Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Berkeley, California, where successful courses were conducted on a one-acre organic garden. The project effectively raised awareness about health issues in the Berkeley community. Other schools now have productive gardens. In New York, the first edible schoolyard project was created at the Arturo Toscanini School in Brooklyn and educated children from kindergarten to fifth grade. The Edible School New York incorporates a quarter-acre productive organic garden that facilitates learning, cooking, and growing year-round. The school teaches around 4,000 students in eight direct service schools annually. 95% of students tried new food in class and 89% liked them. A survey conducted by the school found that, of the parents who participated, 76% of households reported that children ate more healthy food at home. The reintegration of urbanity in agriculture has the potential to change dietary habits and improve American health statistics, especially in the minority communities where chronic illnesses are most prevalent. Urban farming initiatives have led to an increased consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables, especially among children. The theory is that if a child helps to grow food, the same child is more likely to try that food and continue to consume and experiment with what they help produce in the future. By educating children through hands-on farming practices, it is possible to make cultural shifts in food choices that will improve child malnourishment stats and eventually adult consumer behavior. Much of the produce these schools generate is donated to food banks and soup kitchens, which further boosts local food security. As with most solutions, there is not a singular cure for the issues that have risen. Urban agriculture is not a miracle solution that will solve all our problems and will not replace rural farming entirely. But it does provide a step in the right direction for bettering urban residency and food security. Now that you have let us talk, we want to let you talk. 
Hop over to lettercd.com and engage in discussion with fellow urban enthusiasts. If you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. You can also tweet us using the hashtag #LetUsTalk. This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Brad. Special shout out to our guests for their insights, and also Ebony Hatchet for music production. Thanks to the Letters Group for the executive production of this podcast. Until next time.